we be sure that someone is who he says he is? We live in the era of identity theft. We regularly have to answer countless security questions to prove our identity to the bank or some other source. It's so tedious to prove who we are. The most important question we have to answer, of course, is the identity of the Messiah. Scripture, thankfully, provides us with irrefutable proof of the, identif- of the identity of the true Messiah. The Gospel of John, Jesus reveals his identity as Messiah by performing seven signs that fulfill Old Testament prophecies concerning the one who is to come. And John tells us in chapter 20 why he recorded these signs. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, these seven signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John are not just cool tricks for him to do. They're not even just nice things. He's not just helping people out. There's a large, larger purpose. So the first sign, of course, was he turning water into wine, the wedding of Cana. John chapter 2. In John chapter 4, he heals the official son. Here in John 5, he restores the paralytic. Later in John 6, he feeds the 5,000. He walks on water later in John chapter 6, followed by the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And finally, the ultimate sign, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Each of these events serve the larger purpose of proving that Jesus is the Messiah, with the goal being faith and eternal life for those who believe. It's kind of strange. Uh, We see these unbelievable signs that Jesus performs, and most often the people do not get it. They don't understand what's happening before them. He turns water into wine, and the master of the feast, he's just happy he has good wine. He doesn't realize the Messiah is before him. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, the next day the crowd comes back looking for breakfast. They don't laud him as the one for whom Israel had waited. He's one who just feeds them, who gives them food, a free meal. When he heals the blind man, the blind man's parents play dumb. We don't know who this guy is because they're afraid of the religious leaders, their persecution of them. We see here in John 5, the people do not get it. And these signs are not an end in themselves. Again, they serve as a shining spotlight on Christ. The Messiah has arrived. Here in John chapter 5, Jesus demonstrates that he is the Messiah in the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. So we'll look at this miracle in three parts. Just walk our way through the text. First, we see the setting. Second, the paralytic. And finally, the healer. So first, the setting of this great miracle. Verse 5 begins with some time later. This includes the activities that just happened in Capernaum, where he heals the official son. This man's son is about to die. The father comes to him. He meets Jesus on the road, and he asks Jesus to help him. Jesus pronounces that at that very moment, his son will live, and he is healed. The result, verse 53, the entire household believed. Then Jesus leaves Galilee. He comes back to Jerusalem, and he's he's preparing for a feast. We see verse 1 of chapter 5. We're not told exactly which feast this is. It's not really critical to the story, which particular feast that he's celebrating. But the thing to note is that there would have been great crowds in Jerusalem at this time. Anytime there was a feast, many people would come to the city to celebrate this feast. 
and the size would swell. The normal population would be exponentially expanded. So Jesus begins the narrative, or John begins the narrative here, uh, describing the setting of Jesus' miracle. The location for this healing is integral to the story. There's not uh, absolute certainty among scholars as to the identity of this pool. We're not completely sure where it is, uh, this sheep gate pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. There is some understanding that it is near the temple in Jerusalem. Later on in verse 14, Jesus runs into the man in the temple, so it couldn't have been very far from the, from the temple there. This pool has five covered colonnades. These are basically porches supported by a roof with giant colonnades on top holding up the roof. The reason why there are five colonnades rather than four, as we might expect for a four-sided pool, was there were pools, one pool for women, one pool for men. In the middle, there is a colonnade that divides the two pools, and it is in this colonnade where the invalids would gather, this middle porch, middle colonnade. John tells us, verse 3, that there was a great number of disabled people lying there, blind, lame, paralyzed. There weren't short-term illnesses in this crowd. You didn't hang out in this crowd if you had a runny nose or a fever. This was serious, long-term, permanent, disabling illness. Now, if you look closely at the text, you might notice something odd in that it switches from verse 3 to verse 5. What happened to verse 4? Is there a mistake? Is there a typo? Well, if you look down at the bottom of the page, you'll see verse 4 is included from time to time. An angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the water. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. Now, there's a major textual issue with this verse, this verse 4. It doesn't appear in the oldest and best manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. Most likely it is spurious. It's not genuinely part of the New Testament. Now, this happens usually over centuries. So back in the day when they were transcribing the New Testament, there weren't printing presses. They couldn't just print off the text of the New Testament as we would today. So scribes had to hand copy each text of the New Testament. It was a very laborious process. And gradually, uh, scribes would often write notes in the margin as they're copying the text of the, te- of the New Testament. They would write notes to, uh, to teach, to specify exactly what's happening in the text. So in John chapter 5, most likely, a scribe, as he's cop Testament, writes in the margin what came, verse 4. He's writing down this information. And somehow, over many centuries, over copy after copy after copy, this accidentally got included in the text of the New Testament. And so now we can see, through much study, this isn't indeed indeed original. It is spurious. It doesn't belong in the text. So that's why we include it as a footnote at the bottom. Now, even though verse 4 is not part of the original text, it does shed light on the scene. It almost serves as a commentary on the text of what's happening. So based on what the paralytic says in verse 7 when he tells Jesus that he doesn't have someone to carry him into the pool when the water is stirred, we see that there is some belief in a supernatural healing power in this water. This isn't normal water. It's not a normal pool in their minds. They think there is some sort of healing power in this water. Most likely this this uh, water being stirred, of course, they attribute it to an angel 
but most likely it was an underground spring that would bubble up certain times throughout the day. We have uh, we know that there are springs in that area today that function that way. So most likely this was an underground spring. It bubbled up. People thought there was some sort of miraculous healing power, so they rush into the pool hoping that they would be healed. It had to be a depressing scene. Countless disabled people waiting all day, hoping that when the water stirred, they would be the first one in that this would be their chance to be healed, that this supposedly miraculous water would somehow cure them. In verse 5, the camera moves from a wide panoramic view and it zeroes in on one individual, a particular disabled person, the paralytic. In this vast multitude lay one man who had been an invalid for 38 years, We don't know if he was born this way or if he suffered some accident or some illness that left him paralyzed. The point is that he had been there for an extremely long time. 38 years is a very long time to be disabled. The average lifespan for a male in that period was about 42 years. So this was almost a lifetime. In our day, this would be 70 or 80 years this man has been disabled, has been paralyzed. Now, the reason that John includes this information is that it proves that the miracle that takes place is no fluke. Had he been paralyzed for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, there might be some natural explanation for it. Someone who's been paralyzed 38 years does not get better. This is a true miracle. He has no hope but a miracle. This 38-year illness gives this man an identity. Look at verse 7. Sir... The invalid replied. This is who he is. John does not describe him as uh, by his occupation, for example, as he would some, the shepherd, the blacksmith. He doesn't describe this man with a positive characteristic as he describes himself, the disciple whom Jesus loves. This man's identity is in his debilitating condition. This is who he is. This is all he could ever hope to be, barring a miracle. This, his hope for supernatural healing is revealed in verse 7 after Jesus asks, asks him if he wants to be well. He says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Basically, he's giving a veiled request for assistance. I have no one to help me. Maybe you will be that someone to help me, to carry me into the pool. And while, the, while verse 4 at the bottom is not original, this verse is. Clearly, the man views the water as having supernatural healing power. Apparently, the paralytic thought the power was limited to the first person in the pool once the waters were stirred. Because he didn't have anyone to help him, someone else beat him to the water just as he's about to enter. And he hopes that Jesus will be the one to carry him into this supernatural healing pool. A belief in healing by supernatural forces, where it's very common, of course, in the ancient world, especially through some sort of secondary means. Many of the Greek gods were alleged to have healed using some sort of secondary means, using animals as a healing agent, particularly snakes. Snakes were often uh, attributed with healing power. This is how we get our symbol for medicine, the cross with the snake coiled around it. This comes from this ancient uh, superstition. There was also great belief in the 
power of water to heal. All of the temples of the Greek gods who were attributed with healing contained a bath or a pool or some sort of spring for healing purposes. Many people thought that certain rivers or lakes had supernatural healing power, like we see today with the Hindu religion. The Ganges River in India is alleged to have healing properties. And in that day, supernatural healing was connected with magic. It was not possible to separate religion from magic. The two were intertwined also with medicine. So again, you get this strange combination of actual scientific medicine combined with pagan religion combined with some sort of supernatural magical healing belief. So doctors in that day were basically a mixture of true medicine and magic. So they're basically witch doctors. So you go to a doctor in the ancient world, you have a cough, he might diagnose you correctly with pneumonia. But instead of prescribing what we would call normal treatment, He might tell you to go down and bathe in a certain pool and then sleep with a rock on your chest and then you'll be healed. They're witch doctors. That's just the way things were in the ancient world. This belief in magic wasn't limited just to the pagan Romans and Greeks. Uh, The Jewish people were not immune to these practices. Even though they had the Old Testament law, even though they had belief in Yahweh, they often would incorporate these pagan practices into their worship of Yahweh. So they go to the temple, they offer their sacrifice, they follow the Mosaic law, and then they go home, they bow before their little shrine, and they pray to these pagan gods. Maybe they wear a statue, a a talisman, a special uh, necklace around their neck for good luck. We see this adherence to magic in the New Testament. Matthew 12, Jesus is accused of healing by the power of Beelzebul. Well, of course, that reveals that some people were claiming to heal by the power of Beelzebul, cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Acts 19, we see these Jewish false priests who invoke the name of Christ and invoke the name of Paul as some sort of magic spell in order to control evil spirits. They didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah. They didn't believe the teaching of Paul. They just thought that this was one more tool in their magic toolbox that they could use, this belief in pagan magic. The popularity of this belief in magic and healing is evidenced by the adoption of this pool at the Sheep Gate by the Romans after the destruction of Jerusalem. So the Romans come into Jerusalem, 70 AD, they destroy the city. In the next century, they actually expelled the Jews from the city of Jerusalem. And they took over the city completely. And they continued believing that this pool had healing power. No longer was it vaguely connected in some way to Yahweh worship. It was their pagan Roman gods were overlaid the top of this belief in the healing power of this pool. So this site was believed to be holy ground by not one but two different religions. Even though there is no healing power in this water. This man's bondage to his belief in supernatural power of of this healing water, this superstition that he has is revealed when he misunderstands the question of Christ. Verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there, learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? He doesn't even consider that the Messiah might be standing before him, the one who can truly make him well. 
Apparently, he is not one who was looking for the Messiah to come. He's caught off guard when the Messiah does arrive. He's not eagerly awaiting the hope of Israel. He's not concerned at all if this is the Messiah. It's not until he until Jesus confronts him a second time, verse 15, that he proclaims Jesus as his healer. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The paralytic was desperate to be cured of his physical illness, but he had no awareness whatsoever of his spiritual bondage, his bondage to superstition and magic. His hope was misplaced that he did not trust the true healer standing before him. So we've seen the setting, we've seen the paralytic, and now we see the healer. Jesus is the the dominant figure in this story. He's arrived in Jerusalem for a feast. He knows that crowds will be there. And it's a perfect occasion for him to offer another sign demonstrating that he is the Messiah with the purpose that many would see and believe. He's on his way to the temple, and he passes by the pool at the Sheep Gate. There's no accident that he would take this route. He didn't just happen to pass by this pool. It reminds us of the encounter he has in John chapter 4 when he, he meets the woman at the well. In verse 4 it says he had to pass through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to pass there. His satnav didn't take him that way. He had a divine appointment with this woman. And the same is true for this paralytic. There's no way that anyone would just happen to pass by this pool. This isn't a good shortcut. If you can avoid this multitude of invalids, you would. But Jesus seeks this out. He has a specific purpose, to reveal himself as Messiah and to cause others to believe in him. Now, the agenda of the Messiah is revealed later on in the discourse after this healing event, the the rest of chapter 5 of John. In verse 17, he proclaims that he is equal to God. Jesus never heals just for healing's sake. His healing is an occasion. It allows him the opportunity to speak. That's where the power is. That is his purpose, to preach, to proclaim himself the Messiah. The the purpose of the sign is just to point to him as Messiah, to give him a venue to extend his proclamation. You can almost imagine as Jesus comes onto the scene and he scans the multitude and he's looking for the one whom he would heal. He sees this man and knows that he had been there for 38 years, an invalid, a paralytic. Now we're not told if he knew this through his supernatural knowledge or just through his human observation. Either way, Jesus knows this man's condition. And again, it's interesting to note that the most important part of this verse, verse 6, is not Jesus' action, but his speech. The action leads up to his words. This again further reveals to us that the most important part of Christ's ministry before the cross are not his action, it's his speaking, it's his preaching, his proclamation. The signs merely serve as occasions to reveal himself more fully as the Messiah. He takes these events and uses them to preach, to preach the gospel to preach the end of bondage. So he asked this man, do you want to get well? This is a perplexing question. Of course, this man wants to get well. But really, Jesus is asking him, if you want to to enter a state of health, 
This man is currently in a state of disability. He's in a state, a condition of being unwell. This is the realm. He's in the realm of the sick, realm of the unwell, the ill. And Jesus asks him if he wants to move from that state into a state of health. Most often this word refers to physical well-being, but it can refer to someone to someone's spiritual condition. And this question seems out of place. Of course the man wants to be healed. But this question has a larger purpose. In John chapter 6, Jesus asked Philip a question. And it reveals the motivation of the respondent. John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to the... He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Of course, Jesus knows the answer to this question, but he's drawing the answer out of the person. The man's response, placing his hope in superstition, is the exact opposite of what it should be. Just as Philip responded, Philip's looking for a natural solution. Philip answered him, eight months' wages could not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. He's looking for a natural solution to this problem. The paralytic is looking for a magical solution. They both should have placed their hope in the solution offered by the Messiah. Christ wastes no time in revealing himself by healing this man with three short staccato words. Verse 8, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. There's no alternate power that Christ needs. He doesn't need the water. He doesn't need a snake. His word, the same word that created the universe, elevates this man from his condition. To the adherents of superstitious magic, this would have been incredible. No one could heal by his mere word. Proof of the authority of Jesus' word is seen in verse 9. Jesus emphasizes the, or John emphasizes the effectiveness of this healing. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. There's no natural explanation for this. This is progressive healing. He doesn't get a little bit better. Over weeks and months, he's stumbling around. He has a limp, and then maybe one day he can walk a little bit. This is instantaneous. He goes from the condition of paralysis into perfect health. It is complete. Unlike others who had to wait for the water to be stirred, have someone carry them down into this water for their, uh, super, their superstitious healing, this man was healed spontaneously in a miraculous way. Not only is this man transformed physically, but Jesus alters his identity. Verse 7, he's the invalid Verse 8, Jesus commands him, pick up your mat and walk. Verse 9, at once the man was cured. He's not the paralytic anymore. He's not the invalid. He's the man. And so he would be the man who had been healed. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is who he is. His entire identity has been changed by the Messiah. One act, he's transformed. Obediently, the man rises, picks up his mat, he begins to walk. The carrying of this mat demonstrates the totality of this healing. This is a trophy that he now carries. I laid on this for 38 years, and now I carry it as proof that the Messiah has healed me. He's walking around with it. Most likely, he's shouting for joy. 
at this healing. The scene must have been amazing as they know the Messiah has come. The Messiah has fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's clearly revealed as the Messiah in the Gospel of John. Three times it's explicitly stated in this, in this passage, he's fulfilling the messianic expectations of Isaiah, chapter 35. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Jesus is demonstrating his messianic power over illness and disease, but also over false religion. He's, he's crushing the superstition of this paralytic. This man was in bondage to his belief in magic and false healing, and now he's set free. He's released from these chains by the Messiah, the Messiah who was prophesied to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Not only does he release us from physical bondage, but to superstition, to belief in pagan religion as well. Spiritual bondage is no match for the Messiah. He's released from his devotion to pagan superstition. Now he's free to believe the Messiah, and he's free to follow in his teaching. We see in verse 14 and 15 of John chapter 5. And as John tells us later in chapter 20, Jesus performed these signs with the goal that those would believe in him as Messiah, and by believing, they would have life in his name. Christ performed many miracles to point to himself as Messiah. But the greatest miracle, of course, was his resurrection from the dead. And to those who believed in him, he gave right to be the sons of God. Now, many saw these same exact signs that Christ performed, recorded in the Gospel of John, including his resurrection from the dead. Yet they don't believe. What of the others at the pool that day? Did they believe in him as Messiah? How do we explain this? How do we explain that they see this clear sign pointing to him as the one who is to come, yet they do not believe. Flip over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 37. Here is the explanation we're given. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah spoke this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. This is why you can see a miracle beyond miracles and still not believe in Christ as Messiah. So the question for us is, do we love the praise of men more than the praise of God? We may not have direct signs today. We may not see someone healed with a word, a paralytic, able to walk. We may not see someone feed 5,000. We don't have these direct signs of the Messiah, but we do have signs instituted by our Savior. Signs that point to him irrefutably as the one who is to come. And he's given us those signs in the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Every time we hear the word of God preached, He's giving us a sign, proving who he says he is, 
his identity as the Messiah. Every time we witness a baptism, every time we partake of the supper, he's showing us his son as Messiah. We confess this in our Westminster Confession, chapter 27. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. So the word and the sacraments by which God feeds us every Lord's Day are signs for us. They point us to our Savior by whose stripes we are healed. The Messiah has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. He set us free from hope in vain superstition. So we must look to Christ who has changed our identity. No longer are we enemies of God. No longer are we dead in trespasses and sins. Now we are children of the Most High. We are those who've been brought into the light. We are the spotless bride of Christ. Let's bow together in prayer.